Hello, this is Black Country Blokes Chewing the Fat. Listen, listen, listen. I've been hearing a lot lately about men don't talk. But in my experience, men do talk, just people aren't listening. So it's going to be me and a group of blokes discussing our struggles and victories through life. Warning, there may be some bad language, so apologies to all the mums, especially on my own. Let's get going. Listen, listen, listen. I've been yeah, this is the Black Country Blokes tuning the fat about everything that is mental health. Here with me, Kev Dylan, Lee Cabin, and we're joined by the old mucker, Craig Pinch. He's almost forgot your name then, Craig, it's been that long. <laughs> it has been a while. Uh, and our special guest today will be Paul. He's going to be coming on talking about CPTSD. And he's written a book, hasn't he, Lee? He has, mate, yeah. He's written a book called The Struggle Continues. I'm, I'm really looking, looking forward to this. Um, he did have a hard upbringing which led to CPTSD and no doubt he's going to explain more about this. But can I also say what a privilege it is to have Craig back in. It's yeah. been a long time. Craig has had his own struggles, um, but he but he's with us again now. And uh, yeah, long mate, continue. Proud of you, mate. Yeah, thank you, mate. I mean, I don't think there's any um, risk of me forgetting how to talk. Uh, I've probably got that covered still. But these guys have been more than understandable, you know, because it, it is worried. Like sometimes you have to practice what you preach, um, and if you're going through the times yourself, there's no harm in stepping back and resetting. And it could take a week. It took could take a month, a year, whatever it is. So I'll try easing it back in now and, and see how it goes. But uh, thank you, guys. Good to be back. Little steps. And we said what we're going to start doing for the first half an hour, we're going to use it as like our support group. And what we always do is to pass it around the room saying, in five words, Lee, how's your week been? You know what, you'd think I'd be prepared for this, considering we, we talked about it earlier, but I have not prepared five words at all. And so we did gonna... support group last night. <laughs> and we did support group last <laughs> night. <laughs> but as per usual, unprepared. But I'd say sickness. That's Good times. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, give me a chance. It's just off the cuff. We've got an hour and a half for me to think of these, haven't we? <laughs> Sick. No, so it's been full of sickness. Happiness, challenging, and that's all I can think of at the moment. Uh, Mr. Pinches? Five words relating to. Just how's your weeping? Oh. It could be more than five words, you know, or just yeah, five words. We, we, we can't hold you to five words, that's for sure, can we? Well, it's been Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday. <laughs> Apart from that, mate. To be honest, it's been. It's not been too bad. Um, I know you said five words. Challenging. Um, exciting in some ways, and that's two. Can I? Can yeah, I that's fine. Think of the other three later. Over to you, Kev. <laughs> Pretty good week. Oh, that's it. One one shot kill. That is unreal. <laughs> you <laughs> only said a few words. That was rehearsed. <laughs> we was hoping you'd go on with this for ages and ages and cover twenty minutes. <laughs> but when you say about sickness, I mean it's. I mean your the whole cabinet's clamped a bit poorly, hasn't haven't they this week? Yeah, yeah, we've all caught um, the cold bug um, and uh, little Callas now taking it quite hard and had a few seizures because of it. Uh, but, but, you know, this is this is what happens in life. You get cold, you've just got to kind of get on with it and keep moving. And we've said, like, we've had 18 months of hand sanitising, not having any contact, but now the kids are back at school. You're going out for days there to go into the park, going to the pub, going to a cafe, and we're bound to pick up those germs. And normally... We are poorly a lot and our antibodies can pick it up. And I think it's going to just be one of them things. Um, I mean, my week's been pretty good. Me and we did the support group. The club's going really well. Me and Kate went out for a, a meal, the Bombay pickle in Stairbridge. Lovely. 
and then we went strawberry picking and I promised myself through lockdown I was going to start doing more things be it just going to the park or if it's an alright day just go out and enjoy it and what we've got to now do is back up what we actually think because it's great to have all these these ideas like we're on holiday but when you're back on the hamster wheel of life it's uh, it's hard to actually keep the momentum what do you think Craig? Yeah I think mate I've, like you say life goes under it and we continue living how we always have eventually. We had a year where you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you couldn't do whatever. Um, I was out and about not long back, and it, it was quite late at night. I was driving, probably back from the gym, I think, so I started the gym again um, to try and get my head right. Um, and I was driving back, and there was that many drunken folks out. Mm. And I thought, wow, it was like an, like an old-time night. Mm. Um, you know, I used to see people out drunk and them, them staggering home and this that, and the other and I thought it's like nothing had changed it's like all that time has been deleted and everyone's back to normal but I think that's that's what we do we form in we fall into their habits because that's that's just how we survive you know we're creatures of habit it, and when they say don't don't do this and don't do that it's hard for us to do and we naturally do it isn't it funny how you can fall back into those habits as well though quite easily as well even after a year off and this that, and the other and a lot of people, it's the anticipation of getting back to what they love doing. You know, if you've been doing it for, I don't know, if you're 40 years of age, you've been doing it for 20 years, 25 years, you know, going out, and then you've had one year off, I suppose it's easier to fall back in than it is to stay out at that point, isn't it? It's well, easier to create a habit than it is to break a habit. But I found, like, with a lot of you, like, coming out of lockdown, we go, I can't wait to go back to the gym. All my problems will be over. I can't wait to go to a pub. And when you get there, you go... No wonder I never used to come to the pub. It ain't as good as I remember. Yeah. We've, we've romanticised everything. And when you do it, you're going, huh. And then yeah. you're going a bit of a slump because I can't wait. I can't wait. And when it comes, you go, huh, that's pretty enough. Uh, did you, do you think that, Lee, as well? Well, Kev, I haven't been to the pub, to be totally honest. <laughs> I'm not drinking myself at the moment on, on that health kick um, because what I did do over lockdown was all the bad habits... Obviously, you stop training. The one the gym gym open, but what do you do when you when you stop doing that? What you know? And the first thing I did after almost two years of not having a drink was have, have some cans. Mm. But I'm the type of person who overdoes it, so it went from okay, I'll just have a couple on the weekend to having five or six every night, um, and that's you know that's just not good for you. Ultimately, that's not good for you. So the last two months i think nearly now i've gone right let's stop that let's stop stop the takeaways let's let's get uh, healthy again but well, i think what you said then and i've said it to a couple of my old drinking partners saying i drank more through the lockdown than i did in my 20s but in the 20s i was having a laugh it was a sociable drink we we're up to no good and having fun memories but this time it has just been through sheer boredom but once the baby's in bed I treat myself to booze because I don't get them endorphins like, oh, I've, I feel lovely, I've had a donut. So once again, you fall back onto the bad habits and before you know the bad habits have become a bad lifestyle. So I feel that, you know, I've spoke to someone recently about this, about like the drinking thing and each to their own, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's all right, sorry, Lee just <laughs> dismantled the pen and it's tickled me. Um, but yeah, I think... Like with the fitness thing, I feel much better having um, like a protein shake than I do a pint of beer. Like the beer mm. just messes me up. It just me even one pint of beer. I'm probably half cut at you know one pint of beer now. Mm. Um, but I used to. I think I got all that out of my system when I was younger. Mm. Um, 
But if I was to have a drink now, it, it'd probably be a spirit of some kind, you know. And it just doesn't do it for me. Now, going to the gym, because as I said to you, I started back, beginning of May, I think I started back, and I felt so much better. And I remember the times of, of going out and having a drink and this, that, and the other, and you wake up, you've got the walk of shame because you've yeah. probably made a fool of yourself, you've, you've skinned, you feel sick, you've been sick, you've got clean up work. I feel a lot better going to the gym, having a workout and doing a protein. And I know it's eats to their own, but that's how, you know, that's how... What we have to ask is if you're not sick after the gym, are you working hard enough in the gym? <laughs> 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 no, even... No, probably actually. No, actually, I, don't, I ain't never sick because I don't do legs. I skip leg day. I'd probably be sick if I did legs. <laughs> but it's, it's how important gyms are, and um, not just like uh, the Lions ABC, my home, but... In gyms, with football gyms, rugby gyms, boxing gyms, and it's not just the sport you're doing. Yes, you're having the endorphins by doing the exercise, but it also the brotherhood, the family aspect that can come from it. And a lot of people, when they've been so isolated, they haven't got a blood family, you rely on that family to get you through the storm. But I think you bang on. When you're training right, then you think, do I want that kebab? If I, I, I've just done an air at the gym, do I want that six points? And that becomes your alternative to the poison, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think a lot of it's that instant gratification thing that people talk about. When you have a beer, a couple of beers in, you, you start feeling wavy, you start feeling good, whatever, however you feel. Whereas the gym, it may take you two months, three months, 12 months to see a difference. And they, you've got no gratification. Because I find when you start seeing results... Mm. That's when it encourages you to go more. So when you start getting that gratification for the results, you start going more. I think the difference between a beer and the gym, you look forward to a beer and sometimes it doesn't live up to the hype, whereas you dread going to the gym yeah. and when you've been, you feel magnificent. And that is so, that true. So many times yeah. you go like, oh, Kev, I, I just couldn't be bothered. I could be arsed. And a Bracklin G expression in there, the worst one in the whole in the region. I could be bothered. And you're thinking... You once you are bothered and you pull yourself off the settee and you go, how could you feel? I've always said the hardest workout I do is getting to the gym. Mm. Once I'm at the gym, I work hard and I, I like to train hard. But getting me to the gym, getting me past that, oh, should I just go tomorrow? You know, that's that's the hard bit. I could drag myself there last night and it was late. It was about 10 o'clock, I think. So I didn't get out there till 11 o'clock. Um, and I thought, I'm not going, not going. And then I thought, no, nah, I'm just being a fool to myself. If if I don't, I'll regret it tomorrow. You know, so... That, that is the battle. But it's also, the, I suppose, the big difference is with, with the gym, you do get results and you do get that feeling that you've achieved, whereas having a point, you never get that. So whether, like you said, because you got to the gym yesterday, you did your hour, no doubt you felt great after the hour just because you got there, let alone, all, let alone the actual training and the endorphins that gives you. Yeah. Just because... Because that is the hardest thing. Let's defeat that mind and get, get get there. But on about defeating the mind, we've also seen that with the support group or the counselling. The hardest thing, whether you're walking into a boxing gym to keep fit okay. or whether you're walking in to show your vulnerabilities, it, shows, it takes an amazing amount of courage. But when you do go, it's the end feeling. Get over the nerves, the embarrassment, the... And once you're there, get ready to feel better. I think I'll look at it like this. Like if you're bored and you're fed up, you'll sit for three hours, four hours watching Sons of Anarchy, but we'll excuse that, <laughs> watching some kind of TV series and just literally twiddling your thumbs and thinking, I'm bored. 
go mm. what and f- and you talk yourself into a rut then and a bad mental state whereas if you got up and took a 10 minute drive to the gym and done a 45 minute to an hour workout you'll feel you'd feel that much better you'd save four hours of feeling sorry for yourself just by one hour of workout i, th- I think you've also got to add that it is it's not actually just the gym is it no because there's some people who absolutely despise the gym and i'll put myself in that category bar the boxing gym i, I don't enjoy going to the normal gym but i'll do it because it, because of the benefits of it but you can if you're not a person who goes to the gym find something you do enjoy more to give you that lift to go there whether that's going for a walk and how many people go well you know what Lee I just haven't got the time go but how many times are you staring at your phone mm. how many times are you walking around on the phone going you know what Lee I'm so bored what should we do well let's go to the Lions or any of the other brilliant boxing gyms or facilities around this area and they go I haven't got time. Make time because something I'm always thinking is uh, I, I don't eat the best. I've always never ate well. And it's I haven't got time for breakfast. Or if I'm eating lunch, I'm on the move. And we've got to make time for ourselves. And we put a video out on the Black Country Blokes thing today and uh, went for my haircut. And how wonderful you feel after your beard's been trimmed or your hair's been cut or if you're, you know, you've been to a beautician or whatever it is. That bit of self care can make all the difference but often we'll give all that love and all that generosity to other people mm. but we don't save any back for ourselves and i think that's really like you say you do feel i think we spoke about this before like the air cuts and that how important that is to ladies and to men you know i used to walk out the bar but you feel like a new man mm. you know and you really do you feel groomed feel well groomed when you let your hair grow and your facial beard grow, mm. what, what grows of it? I'll <laughs> say it before I hear you do. <laughs> I will tell you what my kids call me. Um, but, like, you know, when, when it grows, but if it's kept groomed and trimmed, mm. then it's okay. But if you're just saying it go because you can't be bothered to, to deal with yourself and this, that, and the other, you go to the barbers or the hairdressers or wherever and have that trim, you, you just feel, whether, whether that feeling lasts, even just for a moment, an hour, or a day, you feel... You feel good and about yourself. The, the same kind of endorphins. Wow, I feel good. As you're saying, I've been to the gym. I've lost a pound. And then the next week, it's two pounds or a kilogram. It's more expensive than that, Kev. I'll lose about 25 quid a month. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, whatever it is. And you start noticing a difference. And then, you know, someone goes, you know what, bro? You're looking well. And then that, that gives you another kick up the bottom to think, you know, I'm on the right track. That's right. But what I will say about all this... We we give this advice, I suppose. I suppose we could call it, but all of us here can be terrible at following our own advice as well. So don't beat yourself up. Oh, the, the, do you know what? It's the worst thing to do. I've always said I can help people with their problems. I can look from you know from an objective point of view. But you know when they try and reflect that on me and use my words against me, I say that it don't work with me. And they say, well, why not? Because I can help. When, when you're not emotionally attached to something or someone and you're looking from a, a complete logical point of view or, you know, from the outside looking in, you can advise and you can give some kind of guidance as to what you feel is the best. But when you're dealing with yourself and you add emotion into that, you become irrational. And it is hard, and I am a, I'm a bugger for it. You know, I don't follow any of my own advice. But when you're in the dark room, we, we all know every show we've ever had, we end with a positive quote. When you're there... It's not a quote, an affirmation, a, a saying. A, it, it, it's a fight, isn't it, to get out yeah. that dark room? Because you're thinking, I know on paper what should me make me feel better, but it's getting there. And sometimes it's just 
riding that wave and yeah. trying to take little steps instead of thinking tomorrow I will be I will be well we should be saying tomorrow hopefully I'm on the way to getting a, a little bit better Mate, you talk about the dark room I, I think I've just thought of something and it's almost as if if you're in a dark room you need to look for something to cope with so you need to look for a switch to find the light before you find the handle mm. and I think sometimes you have, that should have been the positive quote at the end <laughs> yeah. but, but you do you, you haven't always got to have the solution there and then mm. all you need to do is feel around the walls and find that switch to, to unlock you know turn the, the light door. on so then you can clock the situation and hopefully find the door to get an out to of it to get out of it and I think that's what we, we, we so we're so extreme as in we want especially my living extremes you know I'm all or nothing I'm either all in something or all out so if I'm in in a dark place I'm really in the dark place mm. so I can fully invest myself there sometimes mm. almost to get my money's worth probably <laughs> um, you know but you have to you have to do like you said to me well earlier baby steps mm. you know even coming back on today after months of not being involved in any of you guys really not speaking on, on the podcast and anything you know come back today and I feel better for it and what we have done is like what we always do and this is what we've been saying ever since 2019 and but we've got to stay in contact like you sometimes you'll answer sometimes you won't Aaron is a nightmare for answering but he's good with text message and whatsapps and everything and me and you Lee uh, chatterboxes ain't we they all answer to me Kev that's just yeah, you I know I've got feelings <laughs> <laughs> they know they'll be on the phone for four hours to me but <laughs> whatever whatever that person and you know that person then I know the person in your life Find the way of contacting them. As you always say, Craig, back in the day, you'd have the old dears knocking on the door saying, put the kettle on. But we've seemed to have stepped away from that. But you know the person. You know how you want to be addressed. And you know how your loved ones want to be. So reach out to them and just show them you care. Even if it's not like, how are you? Because you often know that's dreadful. But just allow them to know you've been there, even if it's, Oh, have you watched that Lord? Uh, what, what's that motorbike program you watched? Swords of Anarchy. Swords of Anarchy, or Life on Mars, or engage with them in a conversation and yeah. just allow them to know that you are still there for them. And and listen, you know, it's important to listen. And like even starting this program, you spoke to me, and I found myself going in the days and not really un- like computing what you'd said. And I thought, have I learned? Have I unlearned how to listen? You know, because I've not, I've sort of locked myself away from people. Have I lost out to listen? I can still talk, you know, I still talk for England. <laughs> but it's like, you know, even with people that you don't know, give them the time of day. It's like my brother, my brother's not very well. He's uh, been in operation again today, so I hope he's doing well now. Um, and he was speaking to someone the other day outside where he lives. And these guys are, are your typical, they like a drink, we'll, we'll say politely. Um, and he was talking to him and... You know the old saying, well, bloody hell, I attract them. You know, some of it, when, when they're there, really nice guys. And I said, do you know why? And he said, why? I said, because we give anyone the time of day, you know, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're, you know, whatever they are, whatever, whether they're into fitness or drinking excessively, it don't matter. We give people the time of day and we stood there and we spoke to them and listened to them. Mm. And I think it's important to listen to strangers because even, I mean, the ones closest to you are, you find they don't listen as much. Mm. And I've had it recently, I'll say something to someone and then they'll just completely change the conversation and disregard everything I've just said. And in the end, I just say, I don't even try and reiterate what I'd said. I just thought, you know what, I'll just listen to them now. Do you think that's because strangers want to find out something about you? 
so they're more inclined to listen whereas if you're talking to someone you already know the kind of it's curiosity isn't it i suppose mm. with, with a stranger or you know it, it may just be the people that know you might say well you i've knew you years and i've never known you to be like that so where's all this coming from and not be interested but i thought the other day you know there's an old saying that don't tell people your problems because half of them don't care and half of them i'm glad you've got them you know and i think I think it's a bit harsh to say that reigns true because there's 7 billion people in the world and I don't think that, you know, I don't think people are more that bad as much as I, I tend to stray away from them the best I can, but that's just me becoming a social recluse. Um, I don't think we give people enough chances because of bad experiences with a select few, you know. And I think people are primarily good. I think, you know, a 50-50 split, but I think what we're encouraged to believe is... Uh, Every pervert standing outside of school, every don't trust someone because he's after something. And I think we've become too sceptical of the Good Samaritan. And I do yeah. believe that the Good Samaritans are still out there who just go, you're wet, do you want my coat? What yeah. do you want? Well, you're wet, I'm hot. So yeah. you might as well have it or I've got two. And, and I think that's really the is. But I think we need to look at it like, let's say pizza. If you have a bad pizza from a shop, you would just not go to that shop. Mm. You'd still eat pizza. You'd just eat it from a different place. And that's yeah. like that's like we find in your tribe, you know, finding your people. If you go there and the pizza's bad there and no one's listening and, you know, you don't like the taste of the energy there, don't stop trying to eat pizza. Just move on to the next one. Mm. You know, and that's how you find your people. And I think that's what we need to do more as opposed to saying, you know, here's a brush. With Tauron, every human being's going to get it. Because yeah. I think it's un unfair, you know, because I'm certainly not like that. And I know you guys are not like that. So it shows hope if there's three of us. <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to go to a couple of songs while we bring our guest in. Um, so that is Paul. He's coming in. He wrote The Struggle Continues with his daughter, Natasha, and he's going to talk about his experiences with CPTSD. So we'll see you in a bit. Happy you guys. And yes, we've got our special guest in. But I've got more chance of pronouncing his last name than platinurine. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got our very special guest and we're very happy. He's travelled all the way down from Scotland. Paul. What you doing, guys? Uh, how, how do you pronounce your name, bro? <laughs> it's Fjellrad. Fjellrad. And uh, don't worry, everyone mispronounce it. All left. <laughs> Or even sometimes Paul confused Paul's. <laughs> you ever go into a nurse's place and they, they want to call your name out, they go, Paul, and then they just stare at the bit of paper. <laughs> I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and you've written this book about CPTSD, and I think most of us have heard of PTSD, yeah. but I'd never heard of CPTSD. Do you want to go into a little bit about that for us? Yeah, sure. Um, so, PTSD, you've had one traumatic event or period in your life um, and that's overwhelmed uh, your psychology and it, it, it's an injury that is, then, as we know, can be life-altering to recover from. Complex PTSD is repeated traumatic events throughout your life, unfortunately usually layered on top of childhood abuse, trauma and, and neglect. And because of the complexity of it, it's that much more difficult to, uh, to recover and the treatment has to be more intensive. And it's the name. Uh, and, because <clears throat> I'd say I, I don't know too much, Leeds give me a bit. But as you say, like PTSD is horrible in its own sense, isn't it? Because uh, I had it, I got attacked by Staffy, and I, even though I knew it wasn't logical, but every time I heard that bar a bark, 
that dog had come to finish me off. And is yeah. that an extension of what you've gone for the, the C PTSD. So you, you get all of the things that you would have in PTSD. So the flashbacks that you've got this uh, faulty alarm system that mm. can be triggered by a sight, a smell, yeah. a, a sound, a situation. But you also have um, this thing called emotional flashback. So with a with a flashback, you know that something odd is happening. You know you're not in the situation, but it, it comes rearing back at you. Emotional flashback, you return to an earlier emotional traumatic state, mm. and during an attack like that, um, you could lose complete control of your emotional regulation, um, your inability to deal with other people. Um, your inability to deal with the situation that you're in, and it can be, it, it, it takes so much more work to dig yourself back out of that particular state because they can, it can last for days. Do you, like, put it in layman's terms, like when you say an emotional flashback, do you become, let's say it was that uh, eight year old boy, do you become that, you feel as you did at that time, even yeah, though you're a man? Exactly. I mean, in my case, I returned back to the age of 12. Uh, shortly after my brother died and you know in that circumstance I, I was abandoned I was alone it was Christmas it was I was alone in the house it was cold and all of the feelings the emotional state that I was as that 12 year old boy that's what I'm suddenly finding myself in with no context for, for the situation I'm in and then it's that's the real challenge to get yourself back out of and learn how to control again because you have to go back in time to that 12 year old boy and you have to deal with it with the mindset and the thought processes of a 12-year-old. You can't use adult reasoning to comfort that 12-year-old. That 12-year-old needs to be treated in a whole... So the, the treatment processes are quite difficult. But there are some now some advances in the techniques that, um, on the basis of a, a, a doctor called Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and there's this thing called EMDR, Design, Movement, Desensitization and Reprocessing, which allows to... Okay, I'm getting scientific, but it, it basically triggers the limpic part of the brain in order to start addressing the triggers and the emotional triggers that set you back into that state. And I was very fortunate to find a top trauma specialist in Brighton, where I was living at the time, who, um, who treated me through this process for three and a half years. But it's, it's unbelievable, like, um, as a man, you think like a man, but then... To have your your adult mind trying to talk to your child's mind, yeah, it's it's not like when you have children and then you're trying to teach your children through your life experiences, but when you're trying to teach your younger self, yeah, it sounds incredibly difficult. It is, and it's it's all it has. It has just you have to have patience and persistence mm -hmm. and the support around you of uh, loved ones, of friends, who are trying to deal with somebody who is being completely irrational, let's be fair of it, who is not dealing with a situation, who cannot be reasoned with in that circumstance. And I know from uh, how my daughter had to deal with me in that situation, uh, and my friend Glenn trying to deal with me in that situation, you, you're powerless to help. And it's only through that specialist care that you can be taken slowly through that process and come to accept and acknowledge that emotional state that you were in and therefore figure out a way to treat it. In, in, sorry, Kevin, in your book as well, you mentioned actually that specialist care that you received was really fundamental to, to your recovery. But also, mm. you were lucky in the sense that you found...
work and you were lucky in the sense that you found that um, relatively easy, didn't you? you? Was that your second counsellor at that point? Uh, I mean, throughout my life, that was my fourth. Fourth. Right. Um, but I, just randomly, because I was in Brighton, I got hold of Brighton Therapy Centre. You know, literally, it was, I Googled, it popped up. I was looking, you know, trauma. And, you know, up they come as a name. I ring them up. And actually, I'll give full credit to the director of the place, who just happened to be on the, answering the phone that day. And when I laid out what was going on in my head in this sort of jumbled messed up way because I was really not functioning at the time he said yeah okay we're going to get you a specialist we'll get you in for assessment it's going to take about four weeks and as I said in the book I have no idea what I said I'm on a phone with this guy mm. was it the silence was it you know some sort of small verbalization because he immediately said and I can immediately tell that's not going to work for you so we're going to find you somebody uh, we'll get you in next week and we'll get you a therapist I had the assessment which is the most horrific thing you ever do in that circumstance and then they put me together with my therapist i i don't mention his name because he asked to remain yeah. anonymous um so i call him john in the book at his request and we clicked um he's quite a strange character i mean a guy who quotes philosophy at you in the middle of a therapy session who was he you know, able to deal with me on an intellectual level and an emotional level and managed to stick to my rule where i said no hippy-dippy. Can't deal with this hippy-dippy stuff. Just give it to me straight, tell me how it is, and if you can't explain to me why I'm doing something, I'm not going to believe you. And he took my rules and he ran with it. I think that that uh, there's a chapter in the book where you just talk, well, where you talk, you ask John questions, don't you? And that yep. was one of my favourite chapters in the book because the knowledge he was spitting out was unreal. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. But I also, within the book, felt that connection that you had with him. Um, you, you know, you could tell it was, it was, de you know, it was definitely a strong connection. It was definitely, you'd found the right fit for you. Yeah. I mean, he was the first parental relationship I had known in my life. It's all about building trust, as he said in the, the foreword, because, I mean, I was lucky that John contributed to my book and saw, saw the value in what I was doing. So he did the interviews and so on. And letting go of him at the end of it, because he had come to mean so much to me. Um, there was such a strong connection. I wanted him to be proud of me, you know, which is a pretty alien sort of feeling. But we know, as kids, we all know that we want our parents to be proud of us. And it, just imagine that situation. You're going to leave home. Your parents want you to go out and fly in the nest, but it, it's tinged with a little bit of sadness. But you get to go back. I knew to make John proud, I had to leave him behind and not go back to him. And it was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. I imagine it is because, as you say, when you've had that first taste of a family and mm. your parents when you respect and you trust, but then you can't just say, well, do you want to pop out for a pint? Yeah. You know, as we'd like, or do you want to come and watch the football? And when you haven't got that, that relationship outside of the therapy, it must be very difficult when, yeah. when you've had a taste of it. Well, in, in a very practical sense, it was a pressure release valve. Yes. So... Going back, even afterwards, because I still have to live with the symptoms even now. Mm -hmm. CPTSD, there's no conversation about cure here. You live with it, bits of it, for the rest of your life. And going to him each week was that little pressure release valve. It was that little in-depth conversation without judgment, without fear, with complete trust. Yes. And it, we, we would meet up sometimes and just talk about life, about philosophy, about things that we'd read and situations... 
but he knew he had to get me to to let go and to move on and it, it did mean absolutely the world to me and I still miss it I do it was the proudest thing ever that I got to go back and he said I'll contribute to your book because I got to go and meet him again yes and I, I I wrote in that chapter just slotting back into that conversation again that feeling like old friends yeah it was warm, it was comfortable, it was... And when he emailed me after reading the book, because I asked him to do that, he ended his email saying, I just want you to know I am proud of you. And I've got to admit, I burst into tears. Yeah, yeah. Mm. When, a, when a hero or someone you respect that much mm. says it to you, and I imagine, I mean, I'm lucky I've got the best dad in the world who... Mm. He, he, if it, he does me any name, which he tells me he loves me, and I'm the same as a dad, you know, I tell my, my daughter a hundred times every day. And But if you're not from that, and a lot of my friends aren't, mm. and when you've got someone who you adore, and they say, well done, son, I'm proud of you, yeah. it's like winning the lottery, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm terrible at it. Um, you know, my best friend's sitting here, and the only way I could tell him how much he meant to me and that I loved him was to write an article and get it printed in a magazine. Mm. <laughs> so I've got an article out there for a men's magazine called A Love Letter to a Friend. And honestly, it's the only way I could say it. I'm awful at it. And we should be better at this. We should feel comfortable about being vulnerable. But I take your point. You know, it's a, it was such an alien thing to me in terms of receiving it, and particularly from a parental figure. Do you but, think, sorry, Kev, do you think we're not better at it because of, of how receptive others are not? Or do you think it's, or, or that's our fear? and nor in actual fact. It just becomes a built-in norm, doesn't it? Yeah, it's... Um, it just becomes a built-in... a built-in discomfort, you know. If we're in there with a friend, we'll just, you know, give them a punch and, or, you know, we'll, we'll take the mick out of them, but we won't tell them how we feel. And that's just a terrible place to, to, to end up, but it's... I think we're getting better. But we, we did this on one of our very, very first podcasts doing... It's okay to cry as men. And you'll yeah. say, like, um, you were in the pub. My wife's run away with a milkman. And you start crying, I'll pull yourself together. Or my daughter's poorly. Or my dad's died. Or whatever it is. But then, you know, we, we don't cry because we're blokes. But then we'll watch England win the world, uh, <laughs> win a game against Germany. And you see a thousands <laughs> of people all crying. You're going, I don't know these guys from Adam. I watch these pretend people kicking a ball. But we're crying as one because we're passionate. Yep. And, and I see it in the boxing world when one of my lads, my girls, wins, you get emotional. Yeah. We're allowed to be emotional with pride, but we're not allowed to be emotional with despair. It's very true. I, I'm um, During the whole of this process and during the, the, the last year when I started writing and you know, got the book published and all the rest of it, I started doing workshops for companies for mental health. And I became a mental health first aider. Yeah. And a lot of what I've been doing when I've been talking to people about this is we've got to change it so that vulnerability is strength. Mm -hmm. Dealing with the emotion there and then and being able to be vulnerable in somebody, that's bravery, that's strength, that's toughness. Yeah. Wrapping it up is just too easy. Mm. And if we can achieve that, then we're really beginning to open up. And if you want to help somebody... Sometimes you've got to show them that you're willing to be vulnerable in front of them for them to open up and we can begin to slowly break this shell that we've wrapped around ourselves. I feel that, I feel that when, when you're vulnerable to people as well, you do feel better for it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm starting to train myself to just 
say what I feel, say what I want, whether it's good or bad towards me or, you know, whether it makes me look vulnerable or whether it makes me look this and the other. At the end of the day, I'm living how I'm living and my vulnerabilities are a part of that. And how free you feel when you don't yep. feel that you have to lock them inside because at the end of the day, you're going to say them, whether they're received or not, you've already programmed it in your head that you're getting it out of your system. And how free you feel when you allow yourself to do that. No, absolutely. I mean, it's you've got to be prepared to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think some people will sit there, oh, I'll talk about it, I'll read it, I'll go and do a course. Mm -hmm. Oh, I still don't feel comfortable about it, so I won't be vulnerable. Well, when I go out and talked about it, when I wrote the book, uncomfortable. When I thought, you know, I'll go on a date and I'll sit down and maybe they've Googled my name. And the very first thing they know is they've seen my articles from my book, literally with all of my life laid out in front of them, all of my most intimate details. Wow, it's uncomfortable. Seriously uncomfortable. But you have to be able prepared to take yourself to that uncomfortable place and, and then open up. And then you experience that free, yeah. ah, I've let that out. Actually, I feel good. I do feel strong about it. And then you see the reaction coming back the other way. Yeah. And that is so rewarding. I suppose part of it is as well that you've, uh, you've opened up that much and that was, that was extremely uncomfortable. I think in the book, it's when you first went to see John, I can't remember his exact words now, but he's basically told you that he's going to strip you right the way back to nothing. He's going to, and then we're going to build you up. We're not going to start at where you're at because that whole lot is basically broken. Yep. We're going to take you right down. And once you've done that, things probably seem less uncomfortable anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I had been stripped down to my bones. One of the things about uh, PTSD break is you've survived up until that point. And you've survived because you've built layer and armor and defenses up and up. That's what's kept you moving. Those defenses have been necessary so that you survive to a point. But then you break and you are strip roar. All the defenses are gone. The shields are gone. You are completely like an exposed nerve. And then they have to use that moment because now is the only time the treatment would work. It certainly wouldn't work with all those shields in place. You'd never let anybody near enough because your defences would justifiably push them away. So in that moment of just utterly broken down upon the floor, then they can get at all the, the damage inside and clear all the infection, and then you can start to build back up. And then John told me a very interesting thing after he'd said the whole tear down the foundations of your life and build you up. He said, we now have to get you to believe in your defences again, because we do need to put some back in. We all need them to get through life. <laughs> And he said, you've lost faith in them. You think they're gone. You think you're defenceless. And we've needed to use that. Now we've got to give you faith in that the shields are still there. The strength is still there. You're not, as I felt, a, a, a shattered glass statue held together with a bit of sellotape and a breath of air. But actually, all that strength is still there. And once you can begin to believe in that, then you can move on. And it's true. It then made me feel like well, I've been to the bad place. I've been as vulnerable as it's possible to get. One more step. What if I told everybody? What if I used my story, even if it only reached one person? Wouldn't that be worth it? The one guy who's in the same situation, the one girl, the, the daughter trying to support a mother, the son trying to support a father, a friend trying to hold his friend together after a terrible situation. What if they could read something 
and understand the most powerful thing out there, which is I'm not alone. Somebody has felt what I'm feeling now. They've been where I am. And there is hope. There is a route out of this. And that, that's what took me from there on in. It's almost like you, like you were just saying, rebuilding your defences, because you still need your defences. Yeah. It's almost as if when, when you're troubled or when you, you feel you have issues and when you're being fixed, your defences are there to, to protect your, I won't say weaknesses, um, your vulnerabilities, yeah. to defend your vulnerab vulnerabilities. But when you're building back up, your defences are then programmed to enforce your strengths. Yep. So it's almost as if them the same defences, but you, you just direct their use a lot well, more efficiently yeah it's such a complex situation because what john had to teach me is part of you will fight back against the therapy the things the defenses that are in there have been trying to protect you all these years will hold me away and will get inside your head and start trying to undo some of the things that you're doing so it's a weird situation when you need the vulnerability you're trying to build up them strength but you're trying to stop yourself from undoing the very because it's a weird thing. The pain and the trauma is comforting. Mm. It's what yeah. you know. It's all that you've known. Hmm? It, it's what you have known. Yeah. And it, if that's what you've got, you don't, even though it's painful, it's the best of devil you know, isn't it? I'll tell you the strangest thing and the strangest moment throughout all of it. When I got the diagnosis for the first time, you must have been the same thing when, when you got diagnosed. What do you do? You Google it. You look up the symptoms, right? You think, it, it, really, have I got that? Because most people with PTSD, it's like, but I wasn't a soldier. Hmm. So you, you look it up. And I read through the symptoms. And I phoned Glenn up. And then, uh, the man's known me since, you know, we were 12 and 13. And I read the symptoms out. And I said, this is my personality profile. <laughs> Apparently, I'm an illness. Mm. I actually like some of these things about <laughs> me. <laughs> How the hell does that work? Mm. Yeah. And then, second question. What am I if you take that away? Mm. And that's the scary bit that suddenly kicks in. Who am I if you remove this? Mm. Because it had been with me all of my life. That's mad. Hello. Yep, but but it, it's, it's amazing. Isn't it? and, and one of my good friends um, is called Bipolar. Mm. And he says, when I'm manic, that's when I'm my, my best. I'm, I, I call it my great ideas. But then I have to think, hang on. Now I'm happy. Now I've come up with a good idea. Now I want to train. Now's the time I should take my medicine. And he yeah. goes, but how horrible it is to have to take medicine when you're your best self. Because when you're very, very poorly and you're very down, you, you think, now I've got it. But when you're very high, why do I want to take that away? And I my sister Sam, we, sometimes we're thinking, if, as you say, I don't like this about me, the, the fear or everything else. But I actually like this about me and I don't want to lose that part myself. I, Sorry, I'm, I'm just going to have to cut in. We do have to go to the news in a minute, so hopefully you can elaborate on that a bit more. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, we are going to go to the news and have a couple of songs, and then we'll be back with you, with Paul. So I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Happy now. This is the Black Country Blokes, chewing the fact about everything that is mental health. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our first hour. We're still joined by Paul. Now, uh, your book, Paul, was co-written by your daughter, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, my daughter Natasha. That wouldn't have been possible without her. And did you, uh, before we get into the nooks and crannies, do you think it was a great bonding exercise for you both? I mean, it, look, you know, even if we are close to our children, we don't know absolutely everything about each other. Mm. But we'd been through so much together. 
when we talked about writing the book, we had to have a conversation about clearly some things are going to come up that you don't, you haven't heard before, that you don't know the detail of. It's not going to be easy. And we spent a whole weekend away down by the seaside talking it through. And I don't, I mean, it's, you know, any dad is proud of, proud of their daughter. I, you know, I couldn't have been more proud about how she went through that process. You know, we laughed, we cried, we held on to each other at some points when it got really bad. And, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, we understood each other at a much deeper level by the end of it. I think, sorry, Kev, I think that for me this is what made the book unique, that you had um, someone interviewing you as such who who knew you, so the new, she knew what questions to ask. She knew, you know, she she knew your psyche, so she knew how to break things down and, and, and the way to ask you, and I found that really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's the big challenge we talked about right from the beginning is, OK, we can tell the story, but how do you make it readable? How do you make it so that somebody could actually consume what is a very difficult, dark, uncomfortable story? How do you make it accessible? And when we did a couple of trial chapters... She tried initially a really passive narrator's voice. I mean, she's the writer between the two of us. I'm still learning. She's had short stories published and that sort of thing. And it just didn't work. We said, no, we've got to put emotion on the table. You are the reader's guide. You're on a journey with them. You're, you're walking alongside them through all the difficult bits, comforting them, talking in a gentle voice, as well as being like all of our kids are when they grow up, they're taking the mickey out of us, they're poking a bit of fun, they know when we're talking out our ear. And it makes it so relatable. But it was more than that in that I wanted the book to only be for somebody who was potentially in my situation. But what about somebody who was in hers? You know, there she is, a 19-year-old girl trying to deal with a dad who's fallen apart in front of her and can barely function. And... This is a situation that's out there. So whether, you know, it's a friend or a loved one or a child or a parent, she represented them, the person who's trying to help somebody who's in trouble. And she, she did an amazing job of it. There's no other way to say it. And I think because she's had her own experiences with her mental health, hmm. she has, um, she obviously she's not going to understand everything you've been through because uh, her upbringing wasn't the same as yours. Yeah. But she definitely, she was definitely on your same wavelength with the struggles you felt. Yeah, she, I mean, she tried. She tried each time to try and relate. And she, I told her, just be honest. You know, if you sit down saying, "I can't relate to this situation. I can't understand it. I can't wrap my head around it," say it, put it in the book, because the reader will be in the same place. And when you can relate it, we had to have that conversation about because it's my story, not hers. You know, she's going to go away and write her own books. Mm. How much of yourself do you want to put in there? Because you can only do it to the degree you're comfortable with. And every time I read it, she, and she was willing to bear her vulnerability as well. Because let's be fair, if we've, you know, if you've got a parent who's been through some mental health issues, the kids are probably going to be struggling with some things too. Mm. You know, this is, that's what happens. Vicarious trauma is a thing. Your friend is traumatised, so you go with them. Your parent is traumatised. On that, will you explain what that is? Because that, that is a big part of the book as well, isn't it, with, with some uh, past partners? Yeah, absolutely. So the simple concept is, so imagine um, uh, a good friend has a car accident. 
and you've you know you've you've played with them you've run with them you've known them all of your life you and then you see how much that this has taken away the person that you know you've essentially having to grieve for the friend you used to have yeah or it can be the child you used to have and you've got somebody else there now somebody who's been through all these things that changes them so much and you live it with them and you can actually then suffer the same trauma even to the point of suffering with ptsd yourself vicariously through them and you can end up having flashbacks of things that happened to them situations that they went through and this is how quite so often with mental health moves on from generation to generation, from friend to friend. And there have been numerous situations, like in the most recent times at the moment, where, you know, it's your loved one is a, is a nurse trying to deal with the chaos. You're sitting there watching a loved one on the machines because they've got COVID and, you know, they could die. And that is traumatizing for you. You're not the one who's having the trauma, but you are vicariously traumatized. Well, brilliant explanation because I think a lot of us can relate to that. As you say, your your nan's had a stroke, or your nan's got dementia, and or you you whatever it is, you really want that person. When that person mm. that personality is gone, but the human being remains, you're mourning for something that isn't there anymore. Yeah, I, I absolutely. And you're seeing that person change because mm. let uh, let's be clear, you know, trauma changes you. Yes. You are a different person coming out of the other end. You know, Glenn's known me all my life, you know, and but I'm so different to how I was before my collapse. Fundamentally, as a person, I barely recognise myself sometimes. I know it's still me, but I am just a, such a different person in comparison. And it's really easy that you could have a friend who goes, yeah, but I liked that person of you, the one who didn't seem to care, or who everything brushed off their back, and, and suddenly they're gone. And that can be changed through an accident, an illness, uh, you know, uh, the terrible things that can happen with dementia. Suddenly that person that you know is, has vanished away. And that in of itself can but isn't that funny? Massively. I mean, Glenn, I mean, Glenn's behind us. <laughs> but um, isn't it, it a great friend when, like, I like Paul when he was mad, mad as a box of frogs and he was fearless. Yeah. But I also love the bloke he's become because a lot of times when I... Our mate changes from Jack the Lad to, I'm not saying a choir boy, but you know what I mean? When that old, fearless so-and-so is gone and he's matured, or, and then you go, oh. But when you, when, and I'll look at Claire, what I'm saying is, when, when you're lucky enough to have a friend who loves you in both senses, that, that is remarkable. That's friendship to the max, isn't it? Yeah, it is, because I had people who were very close to me from a friendship and a work point of view prior and they really didn't like what was happening to me. I had, people, I had one guy try and talk me out of the therapy, that I didn't need it, that I, and it, I didn't blame him. You know, he knew somebody and that person was changing. The way I was, even the way that I made me good in one way with the job that I did, because I could be seriously ruthless in the job that I was doing and sometimes it needed it, you know, a high pressure sort of business. But that person was going. That person, those things came from a bad place and they, they, they had to let go. And I say with any friendship or any partnership, you either grow together or you grow apart. And, and it depends whether you still like the person that they're becoming. And I they feel, still like you. Yeah. I feel that's so true as well. Like when uh, you've got your drinking mate or your druggy mate and he doesn't want you to get clean because 
you have nothing to talk about then you've got you have, that bond is then gone hasn't it yeah and i were i had to do a major clear down of my friends because i got into some majorly self-destructive behavior but also i had some people around me who were seriously toxic mm. and i remember a conversation with uh, with with the remaining two friends i had it literally was that i went it down and i go i've got two wow that's a place to start from. <laughs> and I think, okay, I'll be. I'll look at it the lucky way. Well, you know, I've got two really good friends, and I've just cleared out everything else. And I had to, because they weren't coming from a good place, and it was going to be the same negative behaviours. And I was going to get. And of course, they wanted me to carry on being the guy who literally would hurl himself face first at life, mm, yeah. because. But unfortunately, that was because I didn't care what happened to me. So, where, if you don't mind me asking, where are you at with yourself? Uh, a much better place now, like, happy with the direction you're going, um, as as opposed to what you was. Do do you miss any of that carefree? You know, you know where, where are you at with yourself? If you don't mind me asking, I used that. to be a lot more bulletproof, mm. and sometimes I miss that when yeah. something really hits me, and I just I have to sort of knock myself about. Think you can do this, you can get through it. If I have to remind myself, no, it's right. I feel this. It's right. It hurts. And it is, yeah, sometimes you do miss that guy who would just steamroller straight through things. Um, resilient. The but it is a better place to where I am now in comparison. Yeah. And eventually that, that steamrolling catches up with you. Again, you mentioned in the book yeah. that Pandora's box that you kept chucking all these these bad experiences into. But every now and again, one of them would sneak out. Yeah. And in the end, you just had to wipe, wipe that out, get rid of all that, because... And and if you go down that route again, you're in that same situation. I mean, we we have something similar here, but it's a backpack. We carry around that backpack of bad experience and keep filling it up. And then before you know it, you're at the top and you've got nowhere else to throw stuff. And and mm. and it tends to lead you down to a bad place where you do something stupid or or say things you don't mean or things along that line. And it's just that pressure build up. It's true. I mean, I keep wondering. There was a precipitating event um, that, that caused my, my crack. Um, I keep wondering, what if that didn't happen? Because we know people who are carrying that back, backpack around for the rest of their lives. And you might go, you know, you need to deal with that. That's heavy. Why are you carrying it? But they're not ready. What would have happened if I hadn't have done that? Was it sustainable? Would I have kept going? Because I'd got that far. I don't honestly don't know. I can never answer that question. I do... My theory is I would have broken at some point and then perhaps it was perfect at that moment that I did because then all the help was around me. But I then had to watch myself because and uh, my therapist warned me, John, about this so many times, right, you're going to want to turn into a bit of a hero here, charging in on your white charger, rescuing people. You, know, you need to deal with what's in your Pandora's box. You need to sort that backpack out. And he says, and you need to not do that. You're going to want to because it's like, you know, I've seen the light. And you will try and batter people into it and try and save everybody. And he had to really sort of coach me through that period. Because once you've dealt with it, I don't know if you get the same thing. Yeah, you you suddenly want to help everyone else because you can see them and you think, oh, why won't you? But we you all kind have of to did get that, that as well in Life One, didn't you? Uh, so, so oh, sorry, I was Life One and Life Two. So um, Paul breaks Life One down as before that breakdown and then life two is after um i'd like i'd book. like paul to explain like because we've we haven't actually got how was the trauma from your brother 
or was it before when you because your brother passed away when you were young mm. could we have a bit of the backstory please Bef- yeah hey, sure yeah, we've, quite, we've kind of gone the wrong way around it, yeah. haven't we? Well, that's but it. that's the way the conversation flows. So No, I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, people in my situation, particularly with complex PTSD, it frequently starts at a very young age. In my case, unfortunately, pretty much from day one. I grew up in an environment that was about as toxic as get. What you can imagine happening in an abusive household, it happened. So it was there always. It was always part of my life. It was always that that experience. It was a house of fear, chaos, and noise. And in fact, until I became sort of 13, 14, I honestly thought that was what everybody's life was like. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, that was normal. That was my world. We just don't talk about it. It happens behind closed doors. But what then broke it, what really then shattered it and became my pivotal moment was when my brother died because it broke the house as well. Was he older than you? Yeah, he was three years older than me. So I'm the last of four. Um, so I've got two sisters, my brother and then me. Once he died, and because of the circumstances of his death, it broke my mother. And my mother, unfortunately, was the principal abusive person in the house. Mm. And it shattered everything up. My two sisters were out of the house. My brother was dead. There was just me. And it went from noise and chaos and craziness to we moved up to Hells Owen. Suddenly I'm living in the black country. Uh, in this absolute shackle-down house that was falling apart. And I was on my own. And that weirdly saved me. Because now they went from being a violent household to just I was ignored and forgotten about as my mother slowly lost her mind. And that led into a much darker period of sort of depression. Up until that point, it was about survival. It was about keeping yourself alive and ducking a lot. After that point, it was dealing with an awful lot of depression until I escaped, went to university, first member in my family to do so, and I thought I was free. I thought, that's it, I'm out into the outside world. What I didn't realise was that when you come from that situation, you become your own abuser. Mm. You believe that's what you deserve. If you've got those toxic relations, it programs you that that's your life, that's what you should get. And so I carried that through the rest of my life. And in reality, because I thought I was the world's unluckiest person, the only thing I was unlucky about was that I was my mother's son. Once I'd left that household, because, you know, that situation you have no control over, everything else that happened to me in my life really spanned from me and my actions and my choices. And that, in a middle of therapy, I tell you, is one of the biggest revelations that you'd ever have to try and deal with, that you did this to yourself. And so I survived and still from one crazy situation to another, one idiotic relationship to another, until my daughter, who I hadn't seen for 13 years, came back into my life, sought me out. And in that moment was the saving of me, but also it was then a ticking time bomb until I broke. Because it's like it suddenly cracked the whole situation open, both for her and for me. And then... I had my break, she had hers, we fell together, and then during the therapeutic process, we rose together. And we supported each other and we helped each other through and we rebuilt our lives together to become the people that we are now. You, you know, when you was broken, in yeah. this, and you're saying, like, because um, your mother was an abuser, and it, that, that's not often talked about as well, isn't it? But women can be as vile as the blokes, can't they? And some oh, of the yeah, unspeakable things that some people do. We can't just tell one gender with the other. 
But then did you, as did you then try and become a rescuer? Were you drawn to broken and toxic <laughs> women? <laughs> yeah, you could clearly see the signs. Yeah, I used to think that I had a neon sign over the top of my mm -hmm. head saying broken people are welcome. Yeah, I will help I, you. I just kept meeting them. Yeah. I thought, hey, how does this keep happening? Mm. I literally, I met this uh, American girl and I, and I was sat in a bar in Mexico chatting away to her and I was thinking, oh, this is going well. Doing all right here. I think I'm in. <laughs> Next thing you know, I've got a little thing in the back of my head and I thought, oh, hang on. I know what's happening here. So I asked a few little questions, suddenly, boom, out came the whole history. Mm. And I thought, how have I done that? I've flown halfway around the world, met a stranger at a bar, started chatting her up, and I've managed to pick the only broken person in the room. Is there a sign on us that we don't <laughs> no. see? And you do. It's absolutely that. You think they're the only people that will understand you. And I think sometimes we're drawn to those people because... They're the victim, I'm the hero, I will put it right, it's, it's not you, it's your ex-partner. Don't worry, we'll get you clean, we'll look after you. And before you know it, you've become the victim. Because some people are quite contempt on being the victim. They're like being downtrodden. And then the person who we are will try and rescue them. Before you know it, they've got the upper hand because they're quite happy with the situation. And they've suffocated us for their toxicness. I tell you what, there's more complicated things happening there when that goes on. One, if I'm dealing with your issues, I'm not thinking about mine. Yes. So I'm using you as a shield to drown out what's going on in my head. Two, you're in a similar mindset, which means any narrative that I've got going on inside my head, you're going to parrot it. Mm. You're not going to challenge me on it. We're both going to be in that situation. Yeah, I yeah. might be playing the hero role for the moment, but it's an absolute facade. Mm. What I'm doing is staying around a situation where that toxic narrative will stay in your head. The worst place to be. All you're doing is enabling each other all the way down the line. And that's somewhere you've lived. So that's something you're actually comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, you know, it's not quite as clean cut. But if you're seriously broken, how the hell are you going to help a broken person? Mm. You have to sort yourself out in order to be able to say anything sensible to the person in front of you. If you're not on that journey, you're not going to help them on theirs. It's like the oxygen mask on a plane, isn't it? You've got yeah. to get yours on before you help your children. The first heart you check is your own and before you help someone. I, I've had a lot of friends who've been in care and come from terrible background, and it's so common. They say, I thought this was the norm, like you just said, and I've heard that so many times, yeah. because you weren't allowed to have Darren around, and, and Darren's mum didn't want to go around <laughs> your house, and then Darren's mum wasn't sure about letting you around, so... You only saw your yep. household or you're attracted to other mates who might be going through the same... I, t I tell you, it was yeah, 13, 14 years of age that I realised that not everyone was taking a battering. Mm. I literally thought that was what was going on. That was one hell of a shock to the system. And it's... Of course, we don't want to talk about it. We mm. don't want to see it. It's something that happens elsewhere. So, of course, we keep a little bit of a distance going on. And so, of course, we don't get those kids and go, you know, that really shouldn't be happening to you. Because we, as a society, we unfortunately don't want to see it. And, and it's very, you become very conscious of hiding your bruises and your, your burns yeah. down. Your, and the perpetrator also knows where to hit and to scratch and everything because you've got to wear your blazer or your shirt. Yep. And you're surrounded by a narrative that you're the troubled kid. 
Yeah. My brother used to go to school battered and bruising, you know, you know, blood and all the rest of it. But he was the kid who was always in fights, so of course that was yeah. going to be happening. Yeah. Yeah. It all happens behind closed doors, and we like to think that we don't stick our noses into all of that. And it's for that reason, and the minimization we do inside of our own heads when we've been through these things. That's not me. I can't be one of those. That's other people. I've seen that on the TV. That's terrible. I can't apply that picture to myself. That it took me until my late 30s to actually say the A word about myself. Abuse. Mm. And the first time I said it, I actually shocked myself. I was actually in marriage therapy for a totally failed marriage I should never have been in in the first place. And I just started talking. And I was about 45 minutes in when I was looking at this uh, marriage therapist who, you know, relationship counsellor, and this absolute look of horror on her face. And she said, have you been abused? And I totally stopped. And it's like, I'm, I'm playing back what I've just said to her over the last 45 minutes. And it was, into, and I actually surprised myself. It actually shocked it. We we embed it. We take the stigma that's out there mm -hmm. and we place it on ourselves. We internalize it. And the shame and the yeah. And what had you got to be ashamed of? It was people doing that to you. But it's the damage, not just the physical. It's that mental uh, abuse. Mm. You deserve this. You've asked for it, and I think that's the the truly horrible thing about it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you have to understand that at age seven, mm. my mother convinced me that I was capable of murder, mm. that I was that cold-hearted, basically a monster, that if I decided that somebody should die, then I would be perfectly capable of doing so, and that I needed to protect the world from me. And once you've got that embedded in, mm. you're off and you're running. Of course you're going to internalise it. Of course you're going to be ashamed. Of course you don't ever want to reveal that. Because you've then got to dig that out. And that again comes back to that whole thing of how do you deal with that? You've got to deal with a seven-year-old who is still inside you. We are. Every version of ourselves is in there. All the way back. All the major events of our life. There's a little snapshot of you sitting inside your psyche. And when that that snapshot of you, that earlier version, has been traumatised, you have to go back and deal with them on that level. And you have to convince that seven-year-old that he's not the monster he's been taught that he is. If you don't mind, I mean, it's a very personal question, if you don't want mm. to... How did you go about doing that? How, like, for me, I mean, when I was seven, I probably liked Thundercats. <laughs> but Thundercats and stuff like that. But to remember... It, but to go back and think, well... Could you try and explain it to you? I'm just it's a, I mean, it's different for every single person. Of course, I was going to say, what worked for me for would you. not work for everybody yes, else. Yes, yes. For me, it was a very analytical process. For me, it was an awful lot about trying to understand this enigma that was my mother yes. and where she was coming from. And actually, my daughter nailed it in the book when she said that is what she thought about herself. She saw characteristics of her in you. And she projected that, therefore, you must be that. If she was the monster and you're like me, then you must be as well. Mm. And you have to deconstruct it. Yeah. You literally take it apart piece by piece by piece by piece until you are just left with all of those fragments. 
And then I don't uh, entirely understand how the EMDR works, but then it starts acti uh, acting on the very primitive aspects of your brain in order to be able to embed those lessons. So there's an intellectual process, and then there's an emotional process that has to go along with it. So once you taught to the seven-year-old, then did you have to literally go from the ages, like to when you lost your brother, to, or was that just like a massive breakthrough? Every, and then, every step. Every step? Every step. As, as uh, John said right at the beginning, we have to tear down the foundations of your life, and that's not a quick process, and build you up from scratch. I mean, it's, it's, you're so remarkable that you've had a John in your life, because I've, I've been, unfortunately, with a lot of people, and they've gone through terrible abuse, and then you tell it to Dr. Cadman, and then Dr. Cadman's not there, so then you've got to relive it and tell it to Dr. Dylan. Yeah. And, then do and I think once it's so painful and you have to keep give that intimacy over to someone, you, you oh, well, this is a situation whereby look, right, we, are, we all know that the mental health system inside of the NHS was not really fit for purpose even before COVID. You know, the NHS is amazing. It's marvellous. It's a miracle. Uh, immediate care. Emergency. It's there. It's right in front of me. I deal with it. Mental health care, we know, is just not on the same level. Yeah. So they dole out, oh, we'll give you six therapy sessions. Yeah. I was seeing my therapist twice a week for most of three and a half years. Mm. And once you've built that trust relationship up, you cannot break it or replace it without major work. Mm. So the very simple, the setup as it stands today does not work for those uh, things like PTSD that require long-term care and that trust relationship. I was fortunate because I have been successful in my consultant career that I could go private. Mm. That's what it came to. I was doubly fortunate that these amazing people worked for these charities for very small amounts of money. I mean, they, they literally, it's like, how much can you afford to pay? And in the circumstance, I said, well, what's the upper limit of your range? And I said, I'm paying that because I can and I would feel wrong doing it otherwise. But they'll take 40 quid for a session from somebody. And if they can't pay that, they'll try and work something mm. out. And these are miracle workers. And, then and something needs to change. It, otherwise, you cannot treat PTSD, in my honest opinion, in the structure as it stands today. And I, I think, like as you said, he's remarkable. Remarkable human beings. Um, a lot of them are charity workers who aren't getting paid a jot. And then sometimes you feel so let down when the so-called experts and so-called people, and you're going, uh, I'm going to complete suicide, but I'm going to phone back on Tuesday. You yeah. Go, well, hang on, Bert. I've just phoned up. <laughs> it's taken me fortnight to... Pick up the phone and you're saying, give me another week. Yeah, and um, let's be clear. I mean, the odds are against you with both PTSD and CPTSD. A lot of people don't make it, unfortunately. A lot of people go undiagnosed or they go untreated. Mm. You know, if you look at the suicide statistics, the percentage of people who have had no contact with mental health services in the year prior is truly terrifying. So then you find the right person. You're one of the fortunate ones. You've played Russian roulette, only there's five bullets in the gun, but you've managed to get an empty one. Even that's not enough, because what's driving you on? When it gets really hard, where do you go? You still then need the support structure. You've got to have the friend who will put up exactly how nuts you're being in that particular moment and how impossible to deal with, and will talk you down and will deal with your ranting and raving. You've got to have the loved ones there that are, that are giving you that motivation. You know... John said to me right at the beginning, what, what's going to drive you through when it gets bad? 
And I said, because my daughter needs me. Mm. And you kept fighting because I had that there. What about the people who don't have that there? Mm. Or don't get on with their family so well? Or their friend isn't that well understanding? So it's so much roulette comes into it, so much luck. And I, I don't believe I did anything special. The only thing I would say is persistence. I kept at it. I was so reliant on all those people around me to help me through it. And, uh, yeah, at that point, you then want to go, well, what about somebody else who's going through the same thing? I can't, you know, I can't turn away from that. What's the name of your book again, mate? The Struggle Continues. The Struggle Continues. We'll advertise, we'll advertise that on our, uh, on our Facebook page. Yeah, no mate? problem. We'll, we'll put that on the Facebook page. And it, is a, it is a really fascinating read. Um, and it was a book, it's, it's rare I do this, but it was a book that I, even myself had to put down at occasions and give it a week and then go back to it. Um, not because it was hard to read, not because it was, in terms of hard as in the language used or anything along that lines. It's just, it is a very emotional book. Um, and I think for some of it with me, it kind of hit home with some, of, with some of the issues that you'd had or experienced myself, like the amnesia that you that you experience and things like that and things like you know that as i I experienced that myself so it was kind of okay i need to take a break take a few days off and then come back to it but it's absolutely brilliantly written really you i can imagine you're really proud of your 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 daughter natasha for that yeah i mean she was very diligent in telling people all the way through look after yourself take the time you know that last chapter was hard so that you felt a gentle voice walking alongside you. And uh, the numerous times people have come back and said, that's what's really made it, and the interaction between the pair of you. And I couldn't have done it without her. Absolutely couldn't. I don't think there's any way, my way of, I'm very in your face. As she did, my, Natasha described it, one chapter, it was a cannonball to the face. <laughs> that tends to be a bit of my personality. <laughs> no. It needed, <laughs> it needed, <laughs> my being friend heckled. agreeing with me. <laughs> <laughs> it needed a gentle voice to take something really difficult and to keep reminding the reader, take a break, step away, process, it's okay. That's it, because it is a hell of a lot to take in. It's a hell, yeah. hell of a lot to take in, and um, but it is. It's just a fantastic read. I recommend everyone. Everyone goes out and uh, purchases. Because how we got onto this, you were saying um, before we'd heard the story about Life One and Life Two. Would you like to elaborate on that now? Now we've actually got Life One well, out the way. You, you put it in. <laughs> <laughs> so the way it's, I'll let Paul explain because he'll explain it a lot better than me, to be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, I really thought afterwards that I imagined how somebody who had cancer and then gone into remission would feel that they're, they're, it's a new life and I felt so different I almost couldn't relate to the person that I was so when you're thinking about how to tell it I knew you couldn't write it just linear one to the end because you wouldn't get through it would you so and it's also the process of therapy you go back to the earlier stages and you begin to make sense that picking apart so it actually began to make sense to tell the therapy in parallel with my life, the events that I was dealing with. It also then makes it easier to get around because you're dealing with the person who survived. You know, you're dealing with a guy who's recovering and rebuilding his life while also reading about how you got there. Mm. But similarly, this is a weird thing. What, what made me write the book was I saw a headstone in a Highgate Cemetery down in London where Karl Marx's grave is. Sat right next to it. 
and written on the words were written on the, on the headstone were the words I did what I could let those who can do more the struggle continues and I kept this on my phone for ages and all of a sudden it hit me my first life before I, I had my collapse and started my treatment I did what I could to survive in my new life I had to do something more I had to take on something more because I could and I thought, that's actually, that's two lies. That's the way that it works. That's mm. almost a rallying, rallying cry to do something about it, to say, yeah, okay, I've got mental health awareness. Okay, what's your action then? Mm. What actions are you going to commit to make? What are you going to go out and do? Are you actually just going to go, yeah, you are, I'm wearing a wristband, I've sent out some tweets, or are you actually going to get up and do something like you mm. gents are? And thinking, no, I'm actually going to try and make a difference here. And this was my way. You know, I didn't start a podcast or get on the radio. I thought, I can write a book. Because somebody said to me once after I told them the story, the words you used and the way you talked about it gave me vocabulary to talk about my issues yes. and get help. And once you hear that, you then go, okay, I can. Remembering back to the headstone, if I can, okay, now how can I not? And the whole structure of the book, the life one, the life two, suddenly it all made sense. It does, and um, I did counselling myself. Um was it last year year before and you're writing what you say sometimes you don't have the vocabulary to tell someone i remember my 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 therapist saying how did you feel at that moment and i couldn't answer that question because i didn't yeah. have the words to be able to answer it and you and you're right in that sense that sometimes you need someone who has got those words to explain how you're feeling or not how they were feeling to relate to it to know how you were feeling yeah, yeah it's like using song lyrics to express how you feel yeah, because you can't get the emotion out. And I should probably mention that Billy Connolly, uh, his book, written by his wife, Billy, I don't know if you've ever read I it, love by Billy Stevenson. That book, when I first read it, was the first time I heard somebody talking about something and I felt heard. I thought, I can see me in that. Mm. You know, the abuse he suffered as a kid and uh, the violence that he dealt with and some of the way his brain tried to deal with it. So somebody did that for me. I took some of those words. You then go, okay, pass it on. Yeah, mm, moving that torch it's, it's, on. It's not stealing. It's sharing the knowledge and it's standing on someone else's shoulders. And when you think of someone like Billy Connolly, I bet it was it PTSD or CPTSD because what a terrible upbringing. And he was one of the funniest men mm. on the planet. But that was probably his Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's the, the, no, it isn't even that. The comedy is a way of processing it. Mm. That's why I make very dark jokes about it. I'll, I'll joke about some of the horrible things that I've gone through. Why? Because it's a way I can talk about it. It's a way I can touch something. It's a way I can process. I think it's a way as well that other people will un, uh, not understand, but a way you can get other people talking about it as well because yeah. it is a joke. And you, and you can go, actually, we can have a laugh about this situation. It's not all deadly serious, just like your book. It's yeah. not all deadly serious but it's a, a serious subject i've actually had people contact me and said am i okay to say i liked the book i enjoyed it well i mean this enough, is your life right <laughs> some bits made me laugh out loud <laughs> i was thinking the same but how do you explain the book if i turn out and go well i like that book i did enjoy reading the book but really should you enjoy reading a book that's about abuse and about someone's struggle but it, that's the thing it's not about it's about a life and yeah. it's you know, I, I've always said that on my headstone, I should have the two dates and there were a series of incidents because <laughs> yes. because I was so crazy, because I was so off the wall, I ended up in some crazy situations. Mm. And I know that 
you know, the, the, the story of going up into the attic to try and find my brother's ashes, right, because my mother had died and my sister tells me my brother's ashes are up in the loft. And, of course, that's an immediate, your head explodes and you're, what? And I'm having to go hunting around in the attic. Was you a man now? Yes, yeah. a grown man. Hunting around in the attic, I've taken a guy with me that I know who is just grumbling and swearing beneath his breath the whole time, <laughs> thinking, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> Stumbling around in the dark until I hear him suddenly take a gasp of breath and sort of make mm, mm, noises. Why? Because he's opened up a plastic bag and a whole bunch of dust has come out. Oh. And we're looking for ashes. Oh. <laughs> and there they were in a plastic Sainsbury's carrier bag in a lunchbox. That's that make a, you feel? The situation is absurd. It's crazy. <laughs> but the thing is, if you live in a crazy life, situations will be absurd. And they can be hilarious. We, I burst out laughing for about the next hour, watching the look on this guy's face. <laughs> and it, you know, literally, as he walks away, go, I am never doing a favour for you yeah. again. <laughs> on a serious note, how did that make you feel, finding that your brother was just left in a, in a box up in the it loft? It actually made sense. Did it? And actually, when I thought about it, is my mother didn't process it. At the time, I was too young and nothing was being explained to me. I didn't process it. So as difficult as it was, when my, brother, my mother died... Now, some people would say, why would you grieve for your abusive mother? I didn't. I grieved for the mother I should have had. Yeah. And that was an opportunity to do that. So that was a healing moment. And I got to grieve for my brother as an adult. Mm. I got to sit down by... Um, we got him a, a, a plot in a memorial woodland down near Bristol. And I still got down there sometimes because I can now talk to him. Because mm. at the time, I hated him. He was the bane of my life. He used to beat the crap out of me. But now I could understand it. I could understand all the situations where he took the aggro onto him, provoked all of the things, because that would be protecting me. Mm. The things I didn't understand back then. So by finding those ashes, I got a whole new opportunity, and I got to look at my brother afresh, the kid who never got a chance. And at the front of the book, I dedicate the book to him. And you lost him at, he was 15, you were 12. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how was it? How, how, how did he go? Um, so he, my mother had basically made all sorts of threats and got him taken away into a home for disturbed children. Mm. I believe because he potentially was going to be talking about what was going on. Mm. He stole a bunch of money. He uh, escaped out of the home in the middle of the night, ran out in front of a car. Mm. Goodness. Quick, good night, Vienna. He was in a coma for a few days but I don't think he felt a thing. As I say, it's hearing you talk about a lot of that, they say, your big brother giving you a lamp in and doing all that. Then there's a man and you look back and mm. you, you look at it with man's eyes, you see a completely different brother, don't you? You do. You do. I understood him more through that process. So actually being able to grieve for him again and reprocess it was a gift. Even though people know that was horrific, and I go, well, actually, no, I, I can see the good out of it. Sometimes we do need to go back and revisit and look at it with a fresh set of eyes, having reprocessed all of those things. And in him, I see every kid that didn't get a chance, the one who's being blamed. It's all their fault, the troublemaker, who actually is the reason they're causing trouble. The you must run across these, you know, we hear so many stories about it in the boxing club. Yeah. You know, the kid who comes there and they get a chance then to get some support, get some companions, and get some, some self-belief out of them. Mm. 
and but some kids don't get that opportunity. Well, they, it's so easy to throw these kids on the scrap heap. Yeah. Oh, why is he feeling Jeffy? And why is he fighting? Why is he pinching? And I, we say this so much. We need better education in school. Yeah. We need mental health first aid teachers. We need kids as young as my Jasmine learning about empathy and why is Kevin hitting people? Why is Paul mm. the class clown? Why and and let's strip it away and have a better understanding instead of just going, well, have you met his mother? <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's one of them. That was the one that was said about me. Mm. Oh, he's one of them. You know, another one of the troublemakers. And from my point of view, I'd start from the assumption there are no bad kids. Mm. If they're acting up, causing trouble, being violent, running away from school, stealing, I'd immediately, okay, what's going on? Mm. What's it's learned behaviours, isn't it, usually? Yeah. But yeah, they've got that from somewhere. They've got that the way to act from somewhere. They, you know, children are sponges. They'll pick up any everything. That's Absolutely, going on. something else is going on. And I, I, but yeah, I can't deal with the fact of um, what can you do about that. Well, and I think, yeah, like I said I, I, I'm always in admiration of what you guys do because you take some of those troubled kids and um, you help them out. You give them a, a bit of an opportunity. Well, you have this kid and he's um, he's getting in trouble. So what we'll do? We'll suspend him. He don't want to be at school, or maybe he does want to be at school, but then he's going to go back to that that hell that he lives in, or he plays up, you give him detention, or you go mm. and send him to juvie. Where yep. he's, and you're thinking, is this the right way? Can't we get this kid into something? Do you like your footage? Do you like your boxing? Let's get you into reading, but instead of reading Taming, the Taming of the Shrew, let's get him reading comic books and then book, boxing autobiographies and books like your own. Because then yep. when they can see the self in the pages, maybe then they do fall in love with writing and reading. Yeah. There's, there's got to be a much better way. Um, I, I, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be here if I don't think if my brother hadn't shielded me from some of what was going on. Because he took the brunt. And I've always therefore got to be grateful for that in the circumstance that we were in. But you wonder, you know, who could that man have been if there were these better support cases out there? If we actually saw those situations, did something positive about it. As you say, if we had understanding that there is no well-being in life without both physical and mental well-being, that it's fundamentally one and the same thing. And if these kids are getting into these situations, well, OK, let's do something about it. Let's not leave them behind. Let's not write them off, mm. chuck them on the scrap heap. Because that would might everybody... The phrase they used about my brother was born to hang. Mm. And that was teachers, social workers, mm. other parents, the lot. That was the phrase, born to hang. Mm. What, what, what hope in life have you got if people of that kind of authority and that, it, that yep. kind of, who should be that influential on you are saying things like that to you? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a very steep hill to climb before you've even began life. And yeah. To, to be honest, mate, even like but you say that he took... He did a lot of it for you, as sort of, he was sort of like the distraction, so as everything went to him and everything yeah. negative. And I think that speaks a lot, you know, even as a boy, he was a great man. Listen, listen, listen. And that's a wrap for another show. But if there are any comments or messages that you would like us to read out for our next podcast, please be in touch. There are also lots of different organisations at the bottom of this page, and hopefully they can help you or someone you care about. Please share this to spread the word. Until we talk next time, tarot a bit. Listen, listen, listen.